As you can probably tell, visiting galleries and museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And our new sponsor, the National Art Pass, makes that a whole lot easier, smoother and cheaper for us art lovers and gallery goers. Not only does the National Art Pass grant you free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, such as Kensington Palace, Cardiff Castle and the Horniman Museum, it also gives 50% off major exhibitions at places such as the British Museum, Tate, v National Gallery, National Portrait Gallery and so many more. And we all know that they have some pretty good upcoming and current exhibitions, from Dora Maar at the Tate Modern to Elizabeth Payton at the National Portrait Gallery. Membership is just £70 for an entire year, and for those under 30, it's a mere £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fev when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities. So you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm very excited to say that my guest today is the brilliant Ivana Blaswick, one of the most important and groundbreaking curators in the world right now, and the director of the Whitechapel Gallery in London, a position she has held since 2001. Under Blaswick's directorship, the gallery has been a force and a leader when it comes to exhibiting a diverse range of artists, especially the championing of women. In 2002, Nan Golden staged her first major solo show here, and in the last 10 years, Ivana has been instrumental in exhibiting solo shows of Sarah Lucas, Sophie Cal, Hannah Hirsch, Elizabeth Payton, and so many more, something we will discuss later on in the episode. In the 1980s and 1990s, Ivana was a curator and head of exhibitions at Tate Modern, working closely with previous guest Frances Morris and director of exhibitions at London's ICA. She is also the series editor of the Whitechapel Gallery, MIT Documents of Contemporary Art, writing monographs on many contemporary artists, and has published extensively on themes and movements in modern and contemporary art. But the reason why we are here today at Whitechapel Gallery to speak to Ivana today is because she has co-curated the gallery's current exhibition, Anna Maria Maiolino, Making Love Revolutionary, the first UK retrospective of one of the most pioneering artists working in Brazil right now, whose career spans six decades and counting, and who we are excitingly going to be discussing today. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank you. So firstly, congratulations on the exhibition. Um, This is really actually the first time I have personally witnessed Anna Maria Maiolini's work in the flesh, and it's been great to have it in the UK as well. And it's been a fascinating education and insight into Brazilian politics. I think what really struck me about the show and actually also looking into her work further is seeing what it must have been like for a young woman, an artist, to witness firsthand life under a dictatorship. 
and how these political environments really actually challenge artists, whether that be thinking about different materials or exploring different themes. Just for our listeners who perhaps might be new to Anna Maria Maiolino, please can you kind of give a brief overview of who she is? Anna Maria Maiolino was born in Italy, actually, in 1942, and she was one of 10 children. So if you can imagine, Italy after the Second World War was poverty-stricken, and hunger is a theme which comes up often in her work. Apparently, she was also left behind in one of the family's many moves of house. So the idea also of being displaced, of being slightly lost, and trying to anchor herself somewhere comes up in the work. When we enter the gallery, what we see is a fantastic banquet of clay. (laughs) And she is someone who is multilingual. She speaks Italian, Portuguese, Spanish, English. And she's interested in all these different languages. And one of the languages that she's pursued in this exhibition is the language of the hand, of how we squeeze and cut and pull and poke. (laughs) What we do, all the different ways that human bodies interact with the material world, with clay. In fact, the first time I saw her work was in a cottage in Germany by the side of a gigantic a baroque park and in the cottage as i entered it i heard the sound of tropical birds singing wow and inside the cottage every single surface tables beds wardrobes was covered in these little clay rolls and it was like walking into a fairy tale it was magical it was mysterious they looked kind of almost good enough to eat And the range of forms would go from a croissant to a penis, every possible (laughs) kind of shape. So what we see here at the Whitechapel Gallery is this fantastic profusion of forms that we can make with clay. But they somehow relate both to food, Mm. to to gesture, to language, and of course to eros. Mm. I think there's something very sensual about the way she works. Going through the exhibition, we also see how she grew up at a time of immense poverty in Italy. She then moved with her family to Venezuela, and finally they settled in Brazil. And that was a fairly typical migration route for Italians after the war, where the country had been decimated. They were still recovering from the after-effects of Mussolini and, and having been vanquished by the Allies. And they sought to make a new life in Brazil. And in the late 50s and early 60s, that was a time of great optimism. Latin Americans looked to Europe and thought, you're finished, it's all over. They saw the ruins of the Second World War and thought, this is tomorrow. Our continent is now going to be the most pioneering, the most forward-looking. And in Brazil, there was a huge explosion of new architecture, new art, and Marlena grew up with this and, and was... It's the Lima Bobardi era, I guess. Lima Bobardi, Oscar yeah. Niemeyer, mm. creating a whole new town, wow. Brasilia. Yeah. They won the World Cup. Yes. <laughs> and Brazilian music was being emulated and celebrated all over the world. So Marlino, as a young woman, a young artist, was very influenced by the work of a generation who were brought up in that fantastic atmosphere of progress and experimentation. She got married, she had two small children, and her husband, a very prominent artist, was invited by the American government as part of a kind of Cold War strategy of forging links with Latin America through culture, because they were very paranoid about communism and about revolution. 
And as part of that program, Latin American artists were invited to New York. Mm. And so she went and found that she, at that time, couldn't speak English and was quite isolated. They only really interacted with other Latin American artists who, seeing that she was female, would say, well, you can cook dinner. She makes a great bolognese. <laughs> so she felt frustrated. Yeah. One artist, Elio Oitisica, was her ally and mentor. And he said, no, you've got to keep working. You've got to be independent. Mm. She made a living actually as a commercial artist. And that kept her going. She kept drawing, experimenting. Finally, she did something very extraordinary. She left. She left New York. She left the husband wow. with the small oh children gosh. and went back to Brazil only to walk into this dictatorship. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it must have completely changed because this must have been about 1971. But just to kind of come back to her earlier work, what was she making in the 60s? What was her work kind of concerned with at that time? She was still really a trainee, I would say. She was looking at illustration, commercial mm. art, beginning to experiment with drawing, but also meeting artists like Lydia Clark, mm. who was experimenting with geometric abstraction, an abstraction that was interactive. That generation of artists were really interested in performance and psychoanalysis. Mm. And so she could see that there was a, a psychological dimension to what they were doing and a political one. Mm. When she returned, she returned to a bleaker, darker Brazil where the dictatorship, the junta, was brutal. There was censorship. And again, there was scarcity. And had she ever experienced anything like this before? No, this was a new and bleak scenario. Yeah. So she showed herself to be tremendously resourceful in times of great repression, when there's censorship, artists are fantastically inventive. They yep. find ways of expressing themselves. And one of those waves, wherever we see authoritarian government, has been performance. Mm. Because it doesn't exist. There's no object. There is no evidence of the art. It happens in time and space with a small group of witnesses and so she became, at that point, very interested in the potential of performance and of filmmaking. So she would document these performances that she made. She also had very little money, and so she worked with what was available, which was paper. And she used the kind of stock that was ready-made, either black or white. And in the exhibition, we see these fantastic experiments that she makes, literally with black and white paper, mm. huge sheets of it. One of the most exhilarating works in the exhibition, I think, is a black square, which is actually a book. And when you unfold the covers of it, it's about 12 inches square, a gigantic sculpture flies out of wow, it. Wow, oh my gosh. So it's a series of black discs which are connected with string and they jump across the space. It's so exhilarating. Mm. So such a book she could hide. That could be easily slipped between the pages of a magazine. But symbolically, it leaps out. There are two very chilling works in the exhibition using black and white paper. There's a map of Italy, which is... Uh, dated 1942, and she's cut Italy, the profile of Italy, out of white paper, and the silhouette of Italy is singed, it's burnt. So it was symbolic of Italy at war. Next to it is another collage 
And that the profile of Latin America is cut out of white paper, and inside she's cut out the profile of Brazil in black paper. And if you look really carefully, you'll see three white letters, SOS. People were desperate. They wanted to tell the world what was happening with these repressions, with disappearances, with this authoritarian regime. They're very poignant works, I think. At the same time, she was always very involved with her children, with family, with relationships, and that also informs the work in a way that perhaps we don't see with other kinds of abstract yes. art. Yeah. And maybe that's more typical perhaps of a more holistic approach that a woman would bring to things like abstraction. I noticed there's a fantastic work on the show called Glue, 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 which has kind of been incorporated in many different ways that she made it in 1967. And what is really interesting about that kind of commenting on abstraction, I mean, one of our previous um, episodes was on Agnes Martin and we were really discussing the grid and the grid being this total kind of high element of high culture, of high art. And then she's actually incorporated the grid as a bathroom and kind yes. of looking at these low cultures. And also looking at very basic functions of the body, yes. of eating, digesting, and excreting. She doesn't hold back from that. She's someone who really puts the body in the center of her yeah. work. And also she uses it as a form of protest. So there's a very disturbing image, which strangely she put right at the back of the exhibition. And it's a self-portrait where she's sticking out her tongue and she has a pair of scissors, the blades of a pair of scissors hovering above and below her tongue, about to cut it off. It's quite a shocking image, I think. So it's about erasing your identity, cutting off your nose, erasing your power of speech, cutting off your tongue, erasing your face. And it's a kind of act of despair. And it's also a protest image against censorship. So this was how, I think, extreme the sense of pressure, discipline, and repression that artists were experiencing during this terrible period in Brazilian history. She put it at the end of the exhibition, and I was asking myself why, and then I thought, maybe it's because Brazil has returned to this yes. very far-right kind of ethos with Bolsonaro, and maybe she feels that this protest, we need to make it again, because there are these right-wing forces that are anti-women, homophobic, against culture, against freedom of expression, about social conservatism. So I think that that's another element of what's happening today. And it's ironic and heartbreaking that there should be this return when artists and people felt that they had returned to democracy. So there's some very interesting themes that are sort of recurring throughout her work. It's hunger, it's immigration, it's language, but it really starts with this basic body, I guess. So with that work I spoke about earlier, Glue Glue Glue, where she actually does make it in sculptural form in a way. What it is, we're seeing this very basic depiction of the body with its mouth, with the intestines. She's got rid of the gallbladder because we don't actually need that. Can you kind of talk about this notion of existence in her work and what that means? I think it's to do with getting rid of all the social constructions that people project on each other, to do with gender, to do with class, with constant identifications. What she does is she returns us to the basis of who we are, of what we are, which is that we're another kind of animal and we all share these universal qualities. We all have to ingest food. We all love. That's true of every single human being. I wonder, I think, whether she's actually trying to return to that very basic sense of being almost in a political way. 
to say that there should be no hierarchy, there should be no differentiation based on whether you're a woman or not. And one of the things I love about the exhibition right now is that in the world of the digital, where everything seems so ephemeral and so disconnected from us, we don't use our hands anymore, we just swipe with our finger, the screen. For me, it was just such a delight to see her working here in the gallery with a gigantic vat of raw clay and that pleasure of just diving into that that very fundamental material, mud. Mm. Probably the very first thing that human beings made something out of seemed to me to be elemental, basic, and a return to our relationship with the physical world. She's also very interested in the mouth yes, as the point of speech, language. Because, I mean, it must have been hard for her. I mean, definitely throughout her sort of six, a decade of, you know, there is this hardship. But I guess what's interesting is there's this notion of language. She must have, it must have been difficult for her to be constantly learning, be constantly migrating from Europe to Latin America to New York and then come back. I mean, that sense of displacement. Yeah, I think you've... Absolutely hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's the crucial part of her work, Mm. which is that being on the outside, struggling to find a way of communicating. And maybe this idea of these gestures of the hand is another form of universal language. Totally. So when you're struggling to communicate, making those kind of gestures which would be used in kneading dough, these are something, again, that are shared universal forms of gesture. I think also that... The idea of continuity with family, there's a photograph of her with her mother and her daughter, and they're connected by a piece of string. Mm. The mother has the string in her mouth, and it links to Anna Maria Mylino, and then that links to her daughter. And string, a very basic, very poor material, is another aspect of what she uses. And that this very fine thing is also a source of strength, that it can connect, it can be woven into something which is incredibly resilient and so she takes something fragile and shows the strength of it and of course for a a female artist I think that has a great symbolism. It's really interesting to see because it was a time of oppression uh, but it also was a time not of dictatorship but also it could have been sort of more liberal as we know now. How did people really react to her work at this time? Actually, Brazil was the second country in the world to have a Biennale, the Sao Paulo Biennale. So actually, it has been very progressive in terms of the visual arts. And thinking back to Niemeyer and Lima Bobardi and the whole pavement of Rio, the designs for that, it was very excited about embracing new developments in contemporary culture and absorbing them into the urban landscape. Mm. I think Brazil, in many ways, was tremendously progressive, but incredibly uneven. And I think where you've got that huge disparity between the wealthy and the poor, it's a paradox about Brazil that it was both immensely progressive and the site of really some of the most avant-garde developments in world art... And at the same time that it could regress to this kind of authoritarian regime. In her lifetime, she was recognized. And so I think she was certainly at the forefront of that Latin American avant-garde, but more or less unknown in Europe. And that changed, actually, at the Whitechapel Gallery in 1996, (laughs) where a great curator called Kathy de Zager 
made an exhibition called Inside the Visible. And she presented a work by Anna Maria Mylino, which we've included in this exhibition. And it's documentation, which is also a work of art, of a very extraordinary performance that she made. Yeah. In 1981, when the Brazilian dictatorship began to soften and there was the glimmer of hope that there may be democracy, she embarked on a series of works using eggs. And there are a sequence of beautiful black and white photographs, for example, of a male fist grasping an egg in such a way that you feel it may break. Yeah. And what she's looking at is the strength, again, of that very fragile eggshell, but also the symbol of the egg. The egg is new life. It's about potential. It's about birth. It's about nourishment. And she made a performance on the streets of Rio where she laid a series of eggs onto the pavement, took off her shoes and was blindfolded and stepped between them. Oh my gosh, how many eggs are we talking here? We're talking at least several hundred. And she made this performance, which was, of course, a beautiful metaphor for the fragility of democracy. Yeah. The sense of new life in those eggs how carefully one has to tread. And that was her message, really, to the political elites. In 96, I think we see a wider shift in Europe towards accepting the great, I think, revolutionary progress of feminism. Mm -hmm. To me, that's really probably the greatest avant-garde of the 20th century. And exhibitions like Inside the Visible, which had only female artists, also brought awareness of art from outside of the West. Had art at that point in 1996, had we not really actually in London seen much Latin American art? It simply hadn't been embraced. The Biennales, like the Venice Biennale, of course, and Sao Paulo itself began to change that. I think the turning point also came where artists like Barbara Kruger, Cindy Sherman, a whole generation of female artists, that the discussions around feminism raised issues about other kinds of exclusion. So thinking, well, why have women been completely excluded from 2,000 years of culture? Yeah. It followed from that that it wasn't just gender, it was also geography. So up until, I would say, probably around the late 1980s and 1990s, there was a strong belief that modernism was a Western phenomenon. Yeah. And the other manifestations of it were marginal. But in fact, that wasn't the case. Mm. If we look at what was happening in Latin America, it had its own momentum. And what they came to the world stage with was an art which had also recognized African identity and culture within Latin America. I think Latin America became relegated to being a kind of misunderstood, really, as simply being a place of repression and of military censorship and so forth. And we forgot how important the artists were in that continent. And that particular show was not only celebrating women artists, it was celebrating non-Western artists. Yeah. So that was a consciousness-raising show where everybody thought, hang on a minute, we didn't know about this, this is exciting. Mm. And I think very slowly things moved on from there. 
And I'm interested as well to hear about people's reaction to Ana Maria Maelina's work in terms of being shown in Brazil. I know before the Whitechapel here, it was shown in Italy, her home country, which is very interesting. And now here, what do you think, you know, also as a British person yourself, how do you react? I feel the universality of it as something which everybody can identify with. Those clay works are almost like a kind of Hansel and Gretel yeah. feel. They remind me of European fairy stories. Mm. And the visceral nature of it, some of the clay pieces she makes are almost like intestines. To me, that transcends locality. At the same time, I think there is something quintessentially Latin American about her sensibility and Italian. We only have to remember this great movement in Italy called Arta Povera in the 1960s, where artists took ordinary things, elevated it into the museum, into the space of fine art. And I think there is that in her work. I think her use of found materials, of very poor materials like thread or, you know, just cheap paper. She wasn't even using bronze or oil on yeah. canvas. And that work between lives, which we were talking about earlier with the several hundred eggs laid out and everything, where did that work take place? And did the government even know that these kind of works were being staged at the time? What was the sort of general reaction from the authorities? Well... I think one had to be under the radar yeah. because you didn't want the authorities to... I think that work was really about hope. Mm. After over a decade of this very, very repressive kind of government, this work was a kind of gift to people, to local people. It was on the street, most importantly. So it was just for members of the public. And it was, I think, to give a collective sense of possibility that she staged that work. It was also the vulnerability. She was barefoot. She was blindfolded. And I think everybody could empathize with her. And did she tread on any eggs? No, she did not. She was so careful. And you can see in the exhibition photographs of her long, slim legs as she moves through this field of eggs. And I can imagine anyone who watched that would have been so moved, but also perhaps had a sense of possibility. You know, it's over. The dawn is coming. We may have democracy. Things will improve. And in fact, sure enough, bit by bit, the power of the military waned and democracy very slowly re-entered the stage in Brazil. And as we discussed, it's currently under threat again. Yes, well, that's kind of another interesting question I want to talk about in terms of her relevance. You know, this work was made in the 70s, you know, nearly 50 years ago or so. And there seems to be something about her work that feels like almost it could be done now. It could have been done then, but it seems timeless. How do you think people who are seeing this exhibition now are kind of actually reacting to that work when we are living in these very politically tumultuous times now? One of the things that is very striking about the exhibition is how eclectic it is. Yeah. And that I see amongst other young artists, that there are no holes barred, there's no division between different mediums. So I've seen that amongst young artists who are really interested in combining sculpture, performance, filmmaking, photography. So I think politically it is the case that we are entering this period of populism, of right-wing politics, of exclusion, and certainly the catastrophe of Brexit is symbolic of that. And what I would love is if someone who is not an art aficionado would see the exhibition and see the pleasure in it, the experimentation, the exuberance, even in extremists, that yeah. this artist 
with very little money and no commercial support for years could just keep experimenting. Because also it's just about humanism. It's about the kind of basics of ourself and nourishment. No, I think it's fantastic. And I also wanted to ask, you know, as your role as a director of Whitechapel Gallery, one of the most significant museums in the world, do you feel a responsibility to echo what's happening outside and actually bring those themes into the gallery for people to see? Very much so. We were baffled by what happened with Brexit and anxious about what's happening in America. And it seemed clear to us that we had neglected all the communities outside the city. Yeah. We're quite an urban institution. We're an international one. But we relate to city dwellers. And as a consequence, we did a series of talks here called The Rural, where we were trying to understand those communities who feel disenfranchised, that their voice is not heard, and who are in post-industrial or post-agricultural settings where we used to have coal mines, where we used to have steel manufacturing. And I think probably we've all been too inward-looking, too hermetic in our kind of discourse around cities. And we've neglected the villages and the provincial towns and the suburbs. I feel very strongly that art and culture and architecture and design have a strong role to play. Of course, it would be wonderful if politicians also were to pay attention to these <laughs> I hope initiatives. Right now. <laughs> so that would be, to me, a great win if we could just make the case for creativity and innovation, because that's the future. And I think we need to, through our education programs, through working with artists and architects, to really call on the creativity that we know is part of any child, any young person. And give it a platform, give it some way of expressing itself that can also benefit the wider community. I mean, the Whitechapel has an incredible history of championing diversity in art as well. And I'm wondering as well, you know, being 2019, having been able to put on this fantastic exhibition of Anna Maria Maylino, actually, how easy was it when you were kind of starting out your career as opposed to now? Do you think there's more of an appetite for diversity and more appetite for, I guess, radicalism with exhibitions? I think without question. And we've seen very recently, the arrival of major figures such as Steve McQueen or yep. Lynette Yadambaraki, artists of color who are now finally getting recognition at a museum level. But it's been a long time coming. And there have been successive waves of feminist art, civil rights movements, gay movements, black movements that have pushed and pushed and pushed against the establishment. But it has taken years. And when I was a baby curator in the 1980s, I had a great mentor called Sandy Nairn. So he did three great shows, all women's shows, called Issue, Women's Images of Men and About Time at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London. These were revolutionary shows. They got no critical acclaim. They got no pickup whatsoever. But, you know, it happened. But it took at least a decade before that bore fruit. And I've learned over my many years in the <laughs> art world, it's a very slow, it's evolution, not revolution. You can see still in the marketplace how women have half the value of their male counterparts. And museums themselves are undergoing a radical change, I think, in recognizing also the overlooked figures historically. 
if feminism was the great avant-garde of the 20th century, I think maybe history is the great avant-garde, strangely, <laughs> of the 21st century. We've seen so many artists look at archives and asking myself why, a hundred years ago, artists wanted nothing more than to jettison history and the past. Now artists are really looking at history for all the gaps, all the overlooked figures, everyone under the radar, because there's many, many untold stories. So it's an exciting time of discovery. Yeah. Someone said to me recently, where there used to be the YBAs in the 1990s, <laughs> now we have the OWAs, <laughs> older women artists, are all having their moments in the sun. <laughs> One thing that struck me about Anna Maria Mylino, however, was because she didn't get market recognition, she never stopped experimenting. One drawback of fame and fortune <laughs> is that there's a pressure to repeat what had market success. And when you have none, you just keep on producing. And I think, interesting that... No pressure from galleries or well, anything, exactly. no deadlines. <laughs> no deadlines. So it's interesting that she made that switch to clay at the turn of the century. And... Where did that come from? So I love that at 75, she's still experimenting with new works. In fact, when she came to the gallery, we had one plan, which was to make a chronology. She said, no, I'm too young for a retrospective. <laughs> so uh, I think that ceaseless experimentation is something that's a great, I hope, will be a source of inspiration to all our visitors. Absolutely. And as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests, um, I guess this time, as you know, Anna Maria Merlino, you probably would say something to her anyway, but maybe if there was an OWA, who would it be and what would you say to her? Well, I've just discovered someone called Lavinia Fontana. Yes, for the exhibition at the Prado right now. Yeah. So that is pretty amazing. She produced 10 children oh and gosh. 200 paintings. <laughs> so, wow, go Lavinia. And I thought that was pretty extraordinary that she took on... Uh, patriarchy which was in every aspect of life society the church and so on um so i would like to meet her and, and see how she pulled that one off i mean what an <laughs> extraordinary woman ask her how yes exactly. <laughs> how did she do it yeah. thank you so much Ivana, for coming on the podcast today thank you for asking Thank you all so much for listening to the 10th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the incredible director of Whitechapel Gallery, Ivana Blaswick. It was so fascinating to hear Ivana's brilliant insight into the Brazilian artist Ana Maria Maialino, and I urge you all to see this exhibition, which closes on the 12th of January 2020. This podcast was recorded and sound edited by the excellent Ellie Clifford. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to rate and leave a little review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Thanks to the National Art Pass, you can now access free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, plus 50% off major exhibitions such as the British Museum and Tate. Membership is just £70 per year and for those under 30, it's just £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass.